This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Evan Novi williams Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. On today's show, we speak with Jerry Jackson, Executive Director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association, about the new collective bargaining agreement with the league. That includes a significant salary bump, marketing, and career development opportunities, enhanced family benefits, and what that negotiation process was like. We're no longer going to be satisfied, neither one of us, neither on the player side or on the union, uh, on the, the league and the team side. We're not going to be satisfied with how this has been run. It is time to bump it up. It is time to say we are in it to win it. We'll have more of our interview with Terry Jackson, executive director of the WNBPA, in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. And let's just just handing out money. Odell Beckham handing out cash to LSU players after they won the national title. Here, you you take some money and you take some money. Yeah, what, what a mess this, this became. You know, I, th- I believe Odell Beckham put it on his Instagram account immediately, right? Him, you know, reaching into a fanny pack and handing out cash to different players. Uh, the the LSU apparently told some reporters originally that it was fake money, which I don't think anybody in the world believed. No, that was now, not the Monopoly man. Yeah, that now, now it, it, it sounds like Joe Burrow you know, said on the podcast earlier this week that it was real. Uh, the, the, the school says it's looking into it. I reached out to the NCAA. They say, you know, contact the school. They'll, they'll give you uh, the updates. Michael, do you have a problem with this? Do you have a problem with, a, with an alumni, you know, <laughs> a, a guy who's a star in his own right? You know, once a game is over, especially to some of these guys like Joe Burrow who, you know, well, don't have energy. Eligibility left, yeah, they're done, or are leaving to go pro. Do we have a problem with the, with an alum handing out cash on the sideline? I, I, I get where you're going with that. However, it is a rule, an NCAA rule, that the, the players can't take money from alumni. But you know, once you're done, once the final snap is over, like Joe Burrow. I love his replies. Like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm done. I, I, I yeah. took the money. So. Yeah, I wonder if there are high school football players out there watching thinking, huh, maybe I should go to LSU. But I mean, the way I fall on this, I think it's, I think it's funny personally. I, I don't have a problem with it. I think if I worked at LSU, I would certainly have a problem with it, right? And and if, if any of the players who took that cash are looking to retain their eligibility, right, that might be a problem. And more broadly, right, I don't think the NCAA loves the idea of even if players – are no longer, you know, going to be NCAA athletes. The idea that at national championship games, you know, wealthy boosters or wealthy alumni are standing on the sidelines handing out bags of cash, right? So I don't think it's a great look if you're if you're the league or you're the NCAA. But on the whole, you know, I, th- I think it's funny. I have, yeah, it is. And I, but I, I've been looking around. How much money was it? I mean, how many how many dollars oh. did the players? Get? I mean, if those were hundreds, right? I mean, what, the Jefferson, that wide receiver, the, the the clip that was circulating, right? He got you know five or six bills, maybe even more, right? So probably not nothing, especially if you're a, a college athlete, right? Who who you're not making a ton of money, as we know, on the side already. Oh my goodness! Uh, moving along, Fanatics continues to take over the world with a deal with 
Notre Dame. Yeah, this is, I mean, as we've talked about many times on this show, you know, Fanatics is the dominant, almost monopolistic brand in in licensed sports apparel, you know, and they're branching out into college. You know, they're taking over licensing departments at college, becoming kind of the master licensee, for lack of a better word, for a lot of these schools. Uh, And essentially what they're doing is, you know, they're going to make a lot of the product, you know, Notre Dame t-shirts, leprechaun shirts, et cetera. and they're going to work with other partners, right? So the Notre Dame Under Armour deal, for example, right? That's not changing. Under Armour will continue to make uniforms, and, and you can still buy Under Armour uniforms for Notre Dame. But the pitch that, that Fanatics makes essentially is a guarantee of royalties, right? And and even if you're Notre Dame, which is a global brand, you know, if your football team and basketball teams are not playing well, your royalties, your, your, your merchandise sales can dip a little bit. So Fanatics offers a guarantee there. Um, they also offer, you know, sales data about who your customers are, what they like and where they are. And also, you know, they, they have a speed that a lot of, you know, a lot of apparel companies don't have. Right. So if the Notre Dame quarterback has a crazy game, you know, eight touchdown game next year, Fanatics, if they want to, can put together, you know, an eight touchdown shirt that the school can approve (laughs) and they can put on sale almost immediately, right? And that's an alluring prospect, especially now with how fickle and how mobile, you know, t-shirt buyers are. I was looking at the the pictures of some of the items and one is on a football and no, not the plastic football. We're talking (laughs) a real deal football with the Notre Dame fighting Irish leprechaun mascot on the football. Yeah, one of the fun things I in, in writing this story this week, you know, I talking to the folks at Notre Dame, they have 200 licensees, right? So there are 200 different companies that they work with to give the Notre Dame logo or mascot or or some kind of IP to to make product, everything from as you said footballs to t-shirts, and I thought that was a crazy high number. 200 different companies. Turns out that's crazy low. There, there are a lot of schools out there that have 400 or even 600 licensing partners, wow. right? Just to give you a sense of how much work goes in at these schools to getting, you know, the t-shirt or the bobblehead or the pennant or the logo grill that, uh, that, that fans have all over the country. Uh, moving along, and uh, well, we all know I like to gamble. I'm not going <laughs> to lie about it. And yes, you and me both. I drive home through New Jersey, and guess what? <laughs> New Jersey is rolling. New Jersey's 2019 sports betting handle $4.58 billion. How much of that was you and I, do you think? Uh, probably <laughs> that eight. <laughs> so, yeah, so $4.58 billion, that's handled. So that's the amount that was wagered at, at, right. at New Jersey uh, Sportsbooks. Uh, pretty crazy number, right? I think I, I think this is right that, that Nevada is going to beat that, I think, this year, but that that number would have been you know second or third highest ever in Nevada, right? So this idea that more states was going to cannibalize what Nevada has going on has not borne out at all. And no question, you know, you live in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is now up and running, but it wasn't at the start of the year. The fact that New York has struggled to get this off the ground is absolutely benefiting New Jersey sports books, right? There are so many, I mean, myself included, I live in New York. I obviously don't gamble legally in New York, right? I gamble legally in New Jersey. So they're benefiting a lot from the fact that New Yorkers still cannot do this legally, but a pretty huge number. And plus, so it's not just the, the four major food groups. There are so many prop bets out there. There's one site now where you can bet 
on the Oscar winners. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of uh, people, uh, and including a lot of women, are like, hey, wait a minute, I want to get in this. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at the the prop bets for you know the NFL playoffs, for example, right? There's some crazy stuff there. And you know, this isn't gonna happen at legal sports books, but you know, you can bet on the the length of the national anthem at the Super Bowl, right? Demi Lovato, pop star, just announced <laughs> she's gonna do that. I saw people tweeting today, you know, she tends to go slow. Yeah, <laughs> when she, when she sees, she's done this a number of times at different sporting events, and there's already a book out on her work, and she tends to go slow. So you know, you're right. That's going to expand, also, right? We're going to see more and more of the legal sports books trying to branch out into fun new offerings, different ways of gambling to try to draw in more and more people. Now let's get to this week's interview with Terry Jackson, executive director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association. Terry, thank you very much, and I think. Congratulations are in order, no? You think congratulations? <laughs> well, you know, I, you said you were, you know, you like to be positive every day. So I don't know if today you're a little more positive than two days ago or than tomorrow, but I think overall this bears congratulations. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I had my first vice president who probably summed it up best how we were all feeling in the moment. We're still processing it all. It's still so big and so grand, but um, we, yes, we feel great about where we have landed for, for the players. Um, and, and I will say uh, we, we feel great where, where the league is, is, is headed and, and positioned for the future. This is an exciting day for, for, for women's basketball and, and for, for women athletes who play in team sports. Now, Terry, That's I got to tell you, looking at it. as someone who has followed the NBA and the WNBA uh, since its inception, I know how much David Stern really wanted it to succeed, but I've also spent years hearing about players complaining about losses and, oh, do we have to own it? Does it have to be tied to a particular team? You've heard all of that. I'm, and I mean this seriously. It's going to sound like a silly question, but I mean this seriously. How did you do this? I, the mindset <laughs> I, the, the, the mindset that I know of the owners not too long ago did not align with top players earning more than five hundred thousand, um, tripling the previous deal. Other players earning between two hundred and three three hundred thousand. Average salary of one hundred and thirty thousand. More liberal free agency. Better travel, better hotel, child care. I mean, I just didn't see him agreeing to all this. So how did it come together? Okay, I, 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 a couple of things to answer that. When I first started in this job um, four and a half years ago, I guess it is now, immediately what came across to me is, do they want to have a league? You know, I saw how the players were living, how they were traveling. Of course, I, I have firsthand access to, to what they're making, what the opportunities are. Um, I didn't know a whole lot at that point in the beginning on, on the business side, but the question really seemed to be that basic. Do you really want to have a league? Do you want to do this? And so as we were understanding the business, as we were having the conversations with the players about whether or not we were going to opt out of, of that last agreement or, or stay in it, um, we, we really got our arms around all of that. And we said, you know what, Here, here's the question. If you want to have a league, if you want to have the best of the best women athletes playing basketball as, as part of your um, family of leagues, if you want a WNBA, this is what you have to do. We're no, we're no longer going to be satisfied, neither one of us, neither on the player side or on the, union, uh, on the, the league 
in the team side. We're not going to be satisfied with how this has been run. It is time to bump it up. It is time to say we are in it to win it. Um, and, and as you frame the conversation that way, as you say, look, and we're not going to compare ourselves to any other league. We're looking at who we are. But if you have the best of the best, they have to travel better. You have to value their performance on the court better. That means you have to pay them better. Um, and and you, you have to recognize that they need additional supports for health and wellness. They need additional supports as working moms. If you have the honest conversations about that and you do it with, with folks on the other side, Kathy and her team, I will give her credit. Um, there were perhaps more women at the table this time. When you have those honest conversations about what it means for, for professional working women, you get to the bottom um, of those, those questions. You get to those answers, and, and you arrive at an agreement that looks a whole lot like what we, we managed to get with the league most recently. Now, I know you're not in on the private discussions on the league side. You're sitting across the table, but I have covered many of these negotiations And my experience is that on the management side, there are always hawks and doves. There's those hardliners say, no, we can't. And then those pushing forward, well, yes, we can. We should compromise. And here's why. What is your sense as who was hawk, who was dove? uh, And how did it how does this play on the ownership side of things? You know, I I, I don't know. I don't know. I I, um, there were, I, I would imagine, there were a lot of, of those kinds of conversations, but at the end of the day, they said, hey, look, we want this to be better. We want this to be better, and if this is what it costs us to do, to do business in a, in a better way, in a way that supports the, the players, and in a way that, has a, that gives us a better product at the end of the day, this is what we're going to have to do. One of the things that, that the players say, and I want to give Shanae Gumake, um, um credit for this, you know, in, in, in really kind of bringing this to um, the, the beginning of our conversations is, you know, we, we, want the, we want better, we want better, but we're going to have to do it differently. We're going to have to look at a different model. We're going to have to we're not just tweak the model each time. We're going to actually have to have a, a whole new model at this. And so um, we were open to that kind of change. We saw that that the league and, the, and many of the teams, if not all of them, they, they were open to that, that kind of change too. Um, and we just finally got there, Scott. I I don't know. I don't. You're right. I'm not privy to those conversations. And um, you know, I, you know, our the the league looks different from when um David Stern, you know, started this so many years ago, twenty more than twenty years ago, right? There, there are some teams that are affiliated teams. There are some teams that are owned by casinos, for example. Um, you know, it, it, and there are independent teams. It, it, it looks very different, and folks have, have varying levels of, of resources and, and different abilities to, to market the team in, in their own cities, in, the, in their own team markets. We understood that. Can we but, get into, Terry, uh, can we get into some of those differences, actually? Because I think, you know, a lot of <coughs> NBA fans might think of the WNBA as operating essentially the same way, you know, individually owned by, you know, fairly rich people. People who, who want to do their own things with teams. Uh, the WNBA launched, as you said, 20 years ago. It was all single entity at that point, right? So, so the, the league essentially owned all the teams. And now we have what? We have this kind of mix of independently owned teams and then teams that are owned by their NBA partners. There are teams owned by corporations. Kind of, How does the ownership structure look right now for folks who don't know? Yeah, I, I guess I would, I would say very 
you know, kind of a high-level description of, of, of what the teams look like right now or, or what the, the ownership is right now. There are still some NBA-affiliated teams. So, for example, um, Phoenix, right? Um, there are some that are independent, um, independently owned, and, and Atlanta is an example. Chicago is an example. Seattle, folks might be surprised that L.A. is, is an example. I think sometimes they assume that there, there might be a connection mm-hmm. with one of the NBA-affiliated teams in, in, in L.A., but that's not the case. Um, and, and, and then I, I think what's interesting, um, the, the team that's in Vegas was actually the team that was formerly in San Antonio, um, part of an NBA-affiliated team, but then MGM bought the the San Antonio Stars um, and brought them to Vegas, and they are the Las Vegas Aces now. Mm-hmm. And and you know to have that affiliation, um, that that relationship with with a casino, I think brings a whole new element. Um, Connecticut is the same way, brings a whole new element and opportunity for for those ownership groups um, to market. Um, and they, they look for entertainment as their content, and, and so they have the machine to kind of drive that and, and get out pretty fast into the community um, and develop those relationships with corporate partners really very quickly. What, what Las Vegas has been able to do, I, I will tell you, um, is, is probably very close to the gold standard in, mm-hmm. in terms of how to market um, a WNBA team. Again, they have those resources, and, and so it, it, it would be different for some of the other ones, but it, it's, it's very, very interesting. We have players in, in that city who um, uh, largely feel very good about, you know, how they live, how they travel and um and and how they how they go to work. And what is the what is the relationship right now between the NBA and the WNBA from a business standpoint? From where we sit, we look at the WNBA as as our league. We have a commissioner um that which gives the league, you know, um, that kind of distinction. Um, but we also recognize that it is part of a, a family of leagues and, and part of the NBA's overall um, uh, brand. Mm-hmm. And do you have any sense? I, I know that, you know, there's always, you know, the unions are always trying to get financial information that, you know, the league and commissioner are always trying to kind of keep private. Do you have any sense if any of these teams are profitable? Um, I, I, I guess the way they answer that is um, – there are some teams that are have done have done well that are you know that are that are doing that are doing well. Um, are there a lot of teams like that? Probably the, the answer to that is probably not. Um, but but you know overall, I, I think the league is is a really really solid league um, um, financially, and and this CBA uh, will put them in a position to to really be to shore that up and and to really position for what's next. So um, you're right. I can't talk a, a whole lot about financially what what the teams and, and the league look like. Um, this is a solid business, um, and and surely it must be right because we opted out of the agreement, mm-hmm. having some information, getting more information um, as we work through it to a point of formal negotiations, um, and and we understood what what could be possible. Um, we also understood that that the league um, was invested and and was going to make a commitment. Um, I, you know, what, some of the language that we heard was 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 going to double down on this, and so this is this is a profitable business, um, and certainly with this new CBA, it's, it's positioned well and and to get, to secure more partners and and to really get it moving. Uh, we're talking with Jerry Jackson, and she is the executive director of the WNBA Players Association. 
And I want to talk to you about the WNBA Players Union president. Uh, you guys have had a very good relationship, if you want to compare it to others that I've seen, a working relationship, and that seems pretty good. Uh, can you comment on that? Sure, sure. Um, our our um, Players Association is headed by, by Neka Gumake and an executive committee of some some amazing, amazing players like Sue Bird and Carolyn Swords, Elizabeth Williams, Lasia Clarendon. Um, now that I'm naming them, I better name all of them, right? Um, uh, Janae Agumake. Um, we had Elena Deladon. We we have um, we we went into negotiations really um, with a mindset that we were going to do business um, and and negotiate perhaps a little differently than than way than the way some of our brother and sister unions have have done and. And it's just because of, of where we were, and, you know, how what, how we saw our position and, and um, how we saw our, our power um, in this. We have always kind of come to business with with um, an understanding that there's going to be a little bit of lean-in from, from the players, but we were also going to be very mindful to protect the interests of the players in, in doing this. And, and so we came to the table essentially with that in mind, that we were, we were going to talk about the, the business side of things, and we were, the, the league had already said that they wanted to do a refresh and reset on, on marketing. And so um, we, were, we were having those kinds of conversations. There, was an op- there had come a point in time in which the WNBA president position um, was, was vacant. They were looking for an, a new head of, of the league. We, we, we reached out instantly and said we wanted to be a part of those conversations. All the while, while we were talking about opting out and then had opted out and we were negotiating a new agreement, we had three different kinds of conversations going on between our union player leadership and the, the leadership on, on the league side. I don't know if any other sports league and union have, have been able to do business in that way. So to be negotiating um, on a new CBA, to be talking about it and involved in at, at, towards the end of who was going to be selected um, to be that new uh, league, well, president's what we thought, we're now to the new league commissioner, um, and then to be talking about the marketing and the business and what the refresh of the brand of the WNBA was going to be like, t- talking about the logo, talking about colors, talking about what the marketing strategy was going to look like and being a part of that plan. Three different conversations. So you come to it saying, we're going to represent the interest of our players in the best way we can. We're coming to the table to do business, but at some point there's, there are opportunities in which we're going to, to lean in and be a little uh, be more collaborative um, so that we can do this together. This was kind of a, an opportunity to press start and get a, a, a new start, if you will, um, for, for the league and the union. And, um, and, and so that was our approach. We came in and we identified where we thought the wins were for both sides. I mean, certainly when you're talking about having players – travel in in better conditions, have them on the road, not sharing rooms with teammates anymore. That was a big deal, right? I don't want a room with Barr on the road. We take this show on the road. I want my own room. No Michael Barr. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, who, who, in, in the working world, when you go on a, on a trip for business, you are not asked to share a room with your colleague, right? That's right. That, that just doesn't happen. And so to be, so for us to say, hey, this is how they're living. It's the player experience. We want to bring this to your attention to, at the league level and to the team owners who are on, on that side, you know, of the negotiating table. We want to bring this to your attention. This doesn't make sense. This is a way that we can kind of course correct where you get a win and we get a win. And so when you identify truly what we thought were the common wins, the, you know, the, the goals that we each had, and you work through that, you give yourself a little bit of momentum to kind of drive through the rest of the conversations. And, and, and that was our approach. Also, you yeah. said lean in a couple times, so you're using a phrase, obviously, Sheryl Sandberg's book. Um, Kathy Engelbert was a former CEO of Deloitte. Where did time, Wall Street included, Me Too movement, do you get a sense that what's going on out there with Me Too that the women of the WNBA just said, if we don't get what we feel is fair and we don't want to hear the arguments, we don't have the money, we don't want to hear any of it, if we don't get the sense that we're being treated fairly, then we would rather not play. I will tell you there were some there were some conversations that had had themes of that running through. And I mean if you look back at where where this all started, I mean the decision to opt out was in November of 2018. The Me Too movement was very much alive and and taking off and there there was a groundswell of support um out there. For women, like there was a spotlight on their issues and what their concerns were in the workplace. That was part of the momentum that was riding into the decision to opt out. I mean, the, that that spring, summer into the fall of that decision, um, the timing of that was very impactful. Did it did it give our members, um, our leadership, um, that? further foundation of support um, for for what you know, they wanted to fight for? Absolutely. And let Absolutely. Me, and let me give you just w- without data to back this up, this is just going to be sort of I feel and I see, whether it's Megan Rapino on the cover of magazines, whether it's the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. I get the sense that corporations are waking up to the value of women. And that, by the way, bodes well in dollars and cents down the line. Do you get the sense in your discussions with the league that, and you have a revenue share uh, part of this implemented in the New Deal, that everybody feels that there are, whether it's sponsorship or marketing, that there, there are these dollars out there that will soon be committed to female athletes and your athletes? Absolutely. And why Absolutely. do you feel, uh, what what gives you that sense? I mean, you, you know, yes, we were we were seeing what was happening for other for other women athletes, for other team sports. Um, the conversations, um, you, you know, we see that there are corporations who are saying we want to help. I, you know, part of part of what was happening was our story hadn't been told. The experience of the players hadn't been told. Um, the the spotlight on the performance of these athletes hadn't really been bright and, and broad enough. And so there, but so there's this untapped potential there. Seriously, I mean I mean that word. Untapped potential there. And then there was the that 
that support across corporate uh, across uh, corporate America in which they were saying, wait, we, we didn't know this. Wait, we want to help. Wait, these women are incredible. Um, what do they need? What resources can we, we – we have the opportunity to bring some resources to the table. We want to be a part of this. These, these are winning athletes. These are the best of the best. These are the most elite in the world. I mean, clearly in our sport, right? Because we only have 12 teams, and we only have 12 roster spots on each team. So that's 140-plus players. And by the way, that 12-team, that, that's going to grow. That's not even a question of if you'll get more teams win. Right, but it just goes to my point on they must be the best of the best. Best of the best. We only have, we only have 140-plus jobs in our league. It's tough to make a WNBA roster. Terry, a lot of this a lot of this kind of reminds me we had Christine Lilly the the US national team, you know, legend on, on the podcast a few a few months ago and she told us this great story when they or not great. You get to the airline story? Yeah, when, I was going to bring this when, up. When they when the women's <laughs> national team used to fly and bear in mind this was a, you know, the World Cup winning this team. This is the best of the best of the best. They would all have the middle seats on the plane. You look down the and road. You could yeah. look down the plane and you would just see the red hoodies in each middle seat. All the way down the plane. Because they were the cheapest tickets they could get. Um, But, you know, women's basketball, women's soccer, not the only two women's sports that are are having these conversations right now. You know, women's hockey, another one, you know, a league recently folded. You know, the the, the star women are are, are fighting for better rights. Have you had conversations at all? Do you think that, you know, you guys may may be a catalyst for for maybe helping professional women in, in sports around the globe? kind of help, you know, fight for, for, for more of their own rights in the same way. Hillary Knight on line one for Terry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, our, our, our president Neka Gumake put it put it so well yesterday when she was talking about this as as a real win for, for women on team sports. I mean, we are we stay connected. I mean, particularly on the on, as the players' union, we stay connected with um, our sisters in soccer, our sisters in hockey here in in this country. Um, we are also part of the World Players Association, which is that greater um, um, association of all unions mm. worldwide. And so, I've had conversations with um, with folks in in the European countries, um, and 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 talking about once we nail down what we are able to accomplish in this CBA. We we kind of want to take the the show on the road, if you will, and um, and and travel um, over to Europe and and talk with with our sisters there and and, and learn from their experiences. It, it it'll be a, a, an opportunity to really share um, you know share some lessons and um, and also you know show them how how we got to where we we you know where we are in, in this new agreement. Um, absolutely, this this doesn't stop with just women basketball here in the U.S. with the W, you know, with the players who, who play in the WNBA. Um, this is a continual conversation with soccer, continual conversation with hockey, um, and, and of course our sisters overseas who, who play soccer and rugby and, and, and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it doesn't stop here. We'll, we'll, we'll continue. We'll continue the conversations and we'll be a resource to any and everybody. All right, Terry, let me get you out here on this in the most tangible of ways for your players. Because many could not make ends meet based on just their WNBA salaries, we heard plenty of stories about players having to go to places like Russia and leave family and leave friends and play in very cold weather towns where they didn't see the sun for months. Have you heard of any of your members who said, man, Terry, 
thank you so much. I do not have to go and do this anymore. Yes. Perfect. Yes. And that you know, that yes, seems yes. to me would be a big re- a, a big reward. Yes, I mean they 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 have the option, right? And they they can still go overseas, but they they can look at the opportunities to to stay in market and and work with the teams on on a team marketing agreement, to work with the league on a league marketing agreement. Um, we have we have turned our internship program into a more robust off season employment program, where the league has committed to identifying jobs with with some of its corporate partners um, and jobs with some of the affiliated teams on, on, on the, you know, NBA, G League, and uh, 2K side of, of the house. Um, there are real opportunities to stay here, to rest, to build your brand, to build the brand of, of, the, of the team, of the league, and, and to prepare yourself for what life is like after basketball. Of course, that is absolutely an interest and a goal, uh, an objective of the, of the Players Association. And as the executive committee has said many times, the approach to this was to look out for all players and to have a holistic uh, approach and view to what a new CBA would be. Thanks so much to Terry Jackson, Executive Director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association. I am amazed that, first of all, with only 12 teams are in the WNBA. That's not going to last long because people are finally waking up. Corporations are saying, hey, you know what? We need to invest in this. Yeah, and and I think you know we, we've been talking you know so much over the past few years about kind of the future of professional women's sports, and certainly the success of the U.S. team at the at the Women's World Cup, I think, accelerated that process. I would argue that this deal right here might be the most significant thing that's happened in professional women's sports in, in a very long time, right? And and you heard Terry Jackson talk about all the benefits, first of all, that that, that women's professional basketball players are going to be getting, uh, and also kind of how that. That resonates across women's sports, right? This is a bet on the future of, of women's sports. And it's not just about the sports themselves. It's a bet that more fans are going to come, that more fans are going to be watching on TV or on streaming. It's a bet that more corporate sponsors are going to want to invest their dollars, maybe not in the men's game, but maybe looking at the women's game instead, right? So I, I think this is a, a monumental step. We may not even know how monumental this is. You know, until two, three, four years from now, very curious in the future what happens with, you know, professional women's hockey, professional women's soccer, et cetera. But I think we're kind of on the precipice and we could look back on this specific collective bargaining agreement as a pretty monumental step forward. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. We were talking about this off air, and we're going to include all of the listeners to play along to see if you can get it. And no fair <laughs> peeking and trying to look on your phones on who it is. Let's see if you remember this. Here's the topic. The women players will be part of the NHL All-Star Weekend, mm-hmm. which is great. And uh, let's go back to last year. One woman who wore the number 26, Team USA jersey, did the lap. In 14.346 seconds around the ice. And uh, it turned out to be uh, one of the fa- in the NHL All Star fastest skater competition in San Jose last year. And everybody was like, oh my goodness. And, and she was the first woman to participate in the skills competition event. Now, who was that woman? 
So I actually, I think I'm pretty sure I know this one um, and great number of the week for, you know, for this episode, given who we just talked to. Um, Kendall Coins Schofield, is that right? That is correct. Great. That is um, correct. Yeah. So she won, I believe she won the fastest skater, uh, kind of yeah. came out of nowhere. There was that controversy afterwards about whether she was going to get the money for winning, right? Because she right. wasn't technically part of it. Uh, but kudos, I mean, she she did get that money in the end. And kudos to the NHL, really. You know, NHL All-Star Game coming up in a few weeks. They're working hard to incorporate more of the professional women. I, I believe, as you said, All-Star Game is going to have a three-on-three component where, you know, right. American women are playing against Canadian women. And, you know, there's a chance that that is you know, the hardest working part of the all-star game, right? A lot of these NHL players, you know, they come here to have a, have fun, right? They want to showcase their skills, but they're not they're not looking to go all that hard. They don't want to get hurt. I would imagine that the, the women in that game are going to be going pretty hard. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that part as well, for sure. And that skills competition will take place January 24th. Set your calendars. I like that. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when me, Scott, and Michael speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs>